0: Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Sexual immorality defiles the church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, well, that's a cheerful passage this morning. Let's get stuck in. We're going to purge people. We're going to like, have flesh be destroyed. We're going to offer people up to Satan. Awesome. Um, uh, This is why we kind of teach the Bible the way we do. We just kind of work through chapter by chapter. Otherwise, these are probably chapters you'd be like, let's find something else uh, to teach on this morning. But I'm actually uh, really, uh, I I, I was actually looking forward to this morning because it's a really important passage. Um, The passage this morning, while it's the context is kind of sexual immorality, uh, the main thrust of this passage isn't looking at sexual sin. Um, so we'll look at that later, that, that does come up um, in a few weeks, uh, so we'll focus more on that then. But this morning really is about uh, what we would call church discipline. Again, a cheerful uh, subject that we're all looking forward to uh, hearing about this morning. Um, I think that word even, discipline, when we think about that word, um, it's one of those words that can mean different things, right? So if we're talking about like self-discipline, um, then that's a, a positive thing. Uh, we're trying to bring ourselves into line with a certain standard to achieve a long-term goal. Um, so you might have self-discipline in healthy eating or establishing new patterns in your life. Uh, earning a degree takes self-discipline. All these things, self-discipline. We like self-discipline uh, in that sense. Uh, we even use the term discipline to, to talk about different branches of knowledge or fields of study, right? Uh, so you might be in the, in the discipline of medicine or discipline of education, whatever it is. Uh, And we call it that because it takes sustained focus, it takes hard work, self-discipline to be able to grasp those things. But then there's the kind of discipline um, that our kind of sinful nature bristles against, right? This discipline by an external force outside of ourselves. And it usually stirs up negative connotations of maybe vindictiveness or judgmentalism uh, in those kind of ways. Um, But if you were paying attention to the text as Sharon read it for us, this is precisely what biblical church discipline is not. Um, This isn't vindictiveness. It's not uh, uh, judgmentalism. Um, I think a lot of the times we hear about church discipline and we uh, bristle, um, we think of it negatively, is, is because of kind of our rampant individualism in the West. Um, We see ourselves as autonomous people. Jonathan Lehman um, says it this way. He says, for the average person in Western culture today, every attachment is negotiable. We are all free agents. And every relationship and life station is a contract that can be renegotiated or canceled. Whether we're dealing with the government, the parents, uh, the spouse, the salesman, the boss, the ballot box, the courtroom, judge, and of course, the local church. I am principally obligated to myself and maximize my own life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I retain power to veto everything. And that's a pretty good description of kind of how we, uh, if we're honest, kind of live our lives in the West a lot of times. Every attachment that we attach ourselves to is negotiable. Uh, And if it starts to uh, be unenjoyable or we don't really like the terms of that, we kind of veto that, cancel it, and we move on to something else. Um, and so when we think about discipline in that kind of sense, um, sometimes we can kind of get a little bit squeamish, especially when we think about church as one. And that might be because you've experienced that in a negative way in the past. Um, no doubt uh, the church has, has uh, messed that up and have, d- have done those things poorly in the past. Um, but we don't want to overreact to past mistakes. We want to look at what does Jesus actually command us to uh, to be as his people? How are we to be as his people? and to uh, press into that. When we really think about disciplinary action, um, we welcome that um, in other kind of contexts, don't we? Think about if you were going to a university, and it takes that kind of self-discipline to earn that degree. Um, but if you found out that another person um, earned a degree by cheating and plagiarism, and then earned the same degree that you did um, without that kind of hard work, you would want the university to exercise disciplinary action, right? Right? You'd want, you would want that person um, to experience kind of punitive recourse. In the workplace, um, if there's inappropriate behavior that's going on in your workplace, uh, maybe you're being bullied, maybe you're being, um, you know, uh, there's uh, harassment uh, that, that's happening. You would want your workplace to, to have disciplinary action on that person, right? We expect a certain kind of professionalism and decorum within our workplaces, um, and it's the same within the church, isn't it? Um, especially now, I think. I think we live in a certain kind of period of time um, where, especially uh, with social media, we're much more aware of abuse that happens in the church, um, and we're much more aware of, bu- of abuse that's been overlooked in the church. Um, you don't have to look far; we right here in our, in our own. Um, in our own country that's happened over and over again right and we see the the media rightly so point that out um, rightly so be outraged because of that and really what that is is what a failure of the church to actually discipline those um, that were in power um, that are exercising abuse and so we kind of church covers it up because we don't want to look bad uh, we move people from one context to another where they can continue to abuse one of the biggest charges against the church uh, from the looking world is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. And church discipline really is meant to keep us from that. It's meant to protect us from that. It keeps us authentic. It keeps us real. Discipline is exercised not to harm um, the, the context of this. Even the person that Paul is, is commanding to put outside of the church. It's not to harm him. Um, discipline is meant to help each other because we are so committed to the church's good. We are so committed to our community's good. We're so committed to each other's good that we can do nothing else. And so, this morning, uh, simple kind of three points that we'll walk through. In some ways, this is a pretty straightforward um, text. It, it really um, is how we uh, how do we think about it? How do we uh, apply this? And so. We're going to look at the grounds for discipline, the goal of discipline, and the grace and discipline, and then um, we'll be done. So let's look at the first one, this, the grounds for discipline. Uh, in which ways are we supposed to kind of exercise discipline? And, and in this case, it's in the first couple verses. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. He's like, listen, I know we Christians have a, have, have a pretty like, strict sexual ethic, but even the pagans are like, yo, that's wild. So there's this uh, kind of incestuous type relationship that's happening here. It's a man who has his father's wife that uh, this idea of having um, in the scripture or knowing someone, he's in, a, he's in an ongoing sexual relationship with her um, in this. And so he, the fact that it's his father's wife, this is more than likely his stepmother. It's not his actual um, blood mother um, within that. But even so, in, in that day, Um, Even the pagans are like, "Hey, that's a bit, that's a step too far." Um, And and we'll see in a second. Like the pagans didn't have a very high sexual ethic uh, at the time. Um, The context that we see this happening in um, is is verse two as well. He says, "And you're arrogant." He's like, "And hey, you're just like openly arrogant about this situation. Rather, you should be in mourning." Um, As if like someone has has died. It it should grieve us at that kind of level. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And the context of the Corinthians at this time um, is a different kind of culture than ours. Um, We live in a kind of meritocracy, right? And so how you kind of um, gain um, honor and things like that is by what you do or what you produce, right? And so if you're an amazing athlete, Um, if you're a a super talented singer, if you're an incredible business person and produce wealth, um, create companies, all of these sorts of things. But back then, as it is with still cultures in the Middle East and in in the East, it was much more of an honor and shame kind of culture. There were things that you could do to kind of garner honor um, within the culture and things that you could do that would take that away or to be shamed. And in this culture, um, particularly for men, they could do hardly anything sexually that would bring them shame, right? So there was uh, a saying kind of in the Corinthian culture, mistresses were for pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, and wives to bear legitimate children. And that was just openly accepted. So you could have, as a man, you could have all kinds of different sexual relationships and none of that would bring you shame. So now our culture still is moving kind of away from, um, we've kind of, we have a Judeo-Christian kind of ethic um, that has kind of shaped Western culture. We're moving away from that again, kind of going back to, uh, to this. But um, it wasn't that long ago with even like adultery carried a little bit of shame, right? You wouldn't want to just be openly known um, in that kind of way. That might have changed some. Women could be shamed. And so if you were a wife, um, you were expected to be faithful to your husband because it was your job to bear him legitimate children. Women excited about that uh, back then? Aren't, aren't you glad for a Judeo-sexual ethic, a Christian sexual ethic these days? Uh, it's not a bad thing, is it? So they, they don't have this sexual ethic uh, that, we, that we have. Um, this, this word that he uses for sexual immorality is this Greek word porneia. It's where we get our kind of word pornography uh, from. It, it, it's a sexual immorality, sexual misconduct. But non-Christians didn't really see, these, see most sexual activity as immoral. So visiting prostitutes wasn't immoral. Having a mistress wasn't immoral. Um, as a man, that wouldn't bring you any kind of shame. You could just openly do that, and it wasn't a big deal. And what's happening here with Paul is these, these ideas, these Corinthians who think this way, have become Christians and are, are uh, still trying to get their head around what sexual immorality now is and should be. And they're failing, especially in this instance, as there's this person who's sleeping with his, his stepmom, and they're just arrogant about that. Um, they don't see that as an issue uh, uh, at all. Um, one of the reasons that Paul mentions sexual immorality a lot in his lists, and, and we'll see it's not the only thing he mentions, um, but often it's one of the first things, is is isn't because Paul is so um, you know, obsessed with, with sex It's just because it was so prevalent within the culture. Um, It was one of their main kind of open sexual sins. It was one of the things that had to change the most um, when they came to faith. And that's true for us today. Um, And maybe true um, really kind since the sexual revolution in the late 60s, early 70s has become more and more. um, Our culture is like that uh, as well again. But this was um out of bounds even in leviticus all the way back in the law leviticus 18 7 and 8 you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father which is the nakedness of your mother she is your mother you shall not uncover her nakedness verse 8 you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife it is your father's nakedness and so even here like back then god laying out his sexual ethic for his people um And so the fact that the woman isn't mentioned, it's the man who's mentioned here, uh, really it's likely that she wasn't a part of the church. Um, She wasn't a Christian. And so Paul is focusing um, solely on him. And what we see here um, is is really Paul doesn't focus his his attention and his instruction so much on the man, although he passes judgment on that. His main focus is on the church. Um, Look at what he says of them. They're arrogant in verse 2. They're boasting in verse 6. Um, and we see this uh, pattern really throughout the first part of the letter as well, right? Paul has to, as we saw in the last two weeks with John, Paul's asserting his kind of apostolic authority because they're kind of arrogant. Um, they're kind of uh, coming up against him with their own kind of doctrines and theology. And what, do, what does he mean by they're arrogant? It could mean a couple things. Um, it could mean in spite of this sin that they're kind of arrogant. And so... Um, you know, they, they realize it, they kind of tolerate it, um, they haven't really accepted it, but in spite of that, they're still arrogant. Um, that's one option. But probable, what's, what's more probable, is uh, that they have really developed a theology um, that allowed this. And so, for them, it wasn't, their arrogance wasn't so much that they were uh, in spite of it, but they were actually celebrating it, um, that they had... Uh, Allowed it. And so you'll see this as we move into chapter six in a a couple weeks. Um, Paul quotes them at the Corinthians in this that, well, all things are lawful. Um, So they created this kind of theology that we have freedom um, because we are free in Christ, because grace kind of covers everything, that anything is permissible. Everything's lawful. Um, And this is an old problem that still raises the head today, right? We look for ways to justify. what the, what the Bible clearly condemns, um, we twist our scriptures to try to fit um, our kind of progressive theologies. Um, now, this morning, I wouldn't think most of us are probably struggling with the temptation of incest. Um, I hope not. Feel free to come and talk to me if that's a, an issue, <laughs> but... Um, But here, and maybe this is probably a good thing, that we look at this extreme example that we can all kind of disagree, even the pagans disagree and go, yeah, that's crazy, right? But the same kind of applies to any kind of sexual sin and really not just sexual sin as we'll see here in a second. Any sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman um, fits into this category of porneia. And do we mourn as Paul says we should? Do we grieve um, the damage that is done by those sexual immoral, immoral relationships? Or do we rationalize them as the Corinthians were? And it's important that we get this right in the church, right? Because we tend to the extremes, right? You have kind of syncretists, um, kind of a progressive syncretists on the left that, all, hey, all things are permissible, Um, And we find ways to kind of twist the scripture into what we want it to be. But then on the other side, the other extreme, we have kind of not syncretists, but separatists, right? We want to create our own little bubble, our own little enclave where we can judge the outsiders. We can point to the people outside and, and condemn them and judge them for how sinful they are. But that's not what Paul does here, is it? Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter. This is his first letter. So one Corinthians that we have is really a second letter to them. So this is his second letter. He's responding to some of the questions. He says, I wrote to you in his first letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of the world. That is outside the church. Or, not just sexually immoral, the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Why? Because then you would have to go outside the world. You'd have to create a... a, a hermetically sealed kind of community that has no interaction with the outside. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, those who claim to be Christians if they're guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside, purge the evil among you. Paul says we're to welcome and love the outsider, those that are outside of the church, non-Christians. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, um, you're very welcome. (laughs) We're not here to judge you in the same way that we are to hold each other to the standard that we've agreed to as believers. All Christians are called to live a life of holiness and of ongoing repentance. Why? Because it's the message of the gospel that we have grace. Do you remember Jesus um, when the Jews set a trap and they bring this woman who's caught in adultery? Notice they don't bring the man. They bring the woman and and she's undressed um, in a shameful state before Jesus. And they're like, all right, Jesus, do your thing. Judge her. And what does he say? Well, let you who don't have any sin in your life, you cast the first stone, go for it. And they're left without any kind of bullets in the gun, as it were, and they all leave. And Jesus says, listen, I'm not here, I don't judge you, um, but go and leave your life of sin. And so there's this call for her to, to come, receive grace, leave that life of sin. this is how we are to be. We are to be like Jesus. But we often get it backwards, right? We want to judge the world, but soft-pedal the issue in-house. And this leads to abuse, usually by the powerful. Leads to the shame. Leads to all sorts of things. Adultery. Leads to all kinds of sexual sin. We're supposed to get close to non-Christians, even sexual sinners as Jesus did, to win them over with love and grace that we'd actually see a life um, of flourishing as Jesus has created us to be. And so a credible church won't ever abuse its disciplinary responsibilities, but will always have a biblical view of restoration in mind. And then also I want to point out that sexual sin isn't the only disciplinary sin. What does he say in verse 10? We saw um, it's the greedy and swindlers. This idea of greed um, these words put together, greed is more than just the love of money. Swindler is more than just theft, right? So, David Garland, a, a commentary, commentator on the New Testament, he says, Put together, you get the picture of those who enrich themselves unfairly the rapacious, the grasping, the have more, whose insatiable hankering after more causes them to disregard completely the have nots, to kick them down the ladder, and to trample the rights and ignore their needs in order to advance upward at any price. The church has more readily condemned those guilty of sexual sin, but Paul regards this kind of unjust um, uh, greediness to be no less nefarious, to be in the same boat. So how Christians handle sex sex is absolutely important. It is, but it's not exclusively so. Christians are to fight unceasingly for justice just as much as they do for sexual purity. And if we did that, how much more faithful would we be to our faith and how much more credible would we be to the onlooking world? The ground for discipline, very simply put, is any moral wrong, whether it's sexual or social, immoral, unjust, done by someone who claims to be a Christian and refuses, this is important, correction and change. This is the problem. The problem wasn't that, the, that, there was, that grace wasn't enough to cover this sin. The problem was is they didn't recognize it as sin. They didn't recognize it as something that needed to be changed. And so the grounds for discipline is that. It's unrepentant sin. It's, it's, it's not sin that we acknowledge as sin. And so if you're here this morning and you're like me this morning, you're aware of the ways that we fail uh, the Lord, the ways that we sin in our life. So this isn't, we're not calling for sinless perfection. Um, but it's the fact that I recognize those things as sin. I'm, 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 re- I'm living a life of repentance. I'm actively striving to mortify the flesh, as the Bible says. I'm, I'm struggling against those things. I have people in my life um, that, are, that are helping me, that are praying for me, that are holding me accountable to these things. That's not what was happening here. This was a sin that was openly celebrated, Um, that wasn't called sin, there was no um, repentance taking place. So that's the kind of grounds of discipline. What's the goal then? Because there's a lot of harsh language in this, isn't it? Let him be removed from among you, deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, don't associate with him, purge the evil person from among you. But if our first reaction is, wow, that's a bit harsh, it's probably because we've lost sight of what we've sung about this morning, God's holiness. Do you remember Isaiah when he um, when he's, comes face to face with God? The words that he's hearing sung by the angelic beings that are there is holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what's Isaiah's response I am a man of unclean lips, he says. Immediately, he recognizes the weight of his sin. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I am of a people that is unclean. He's immediately aware of his sin. Everybody else, when they come into contact with God, falls down on their face. They know their unworthiness. And Isaiah is gonna be commissioned as a prophet. He's gonna be sent out. But first, he's cleansed with fire, from his sin. His sin is has dealt with. It. It's acknowledged that's there. Church discipline is really just assuring the normal consequences of what is supposed to be uh, the norm for God's holy people. We are ambassadors, as, as Peter says, representing a holy God. We are to be a holy people. The actual word church, um, we get it from this Greek word, which means to be called out, to be separated from. We are to be different. We're to be markedly different from the rest of the world around us. That doesn't mean that, we do, that we're perfect in that representation. But it should mean that we are striving for that. So what is this kind of um, goal then? We see in verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So... That his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul says, when you're together, the Spirit is present. He says, my spirit's there, this apostolic authority. So even though I'm not there in person, this letter, because he knew this letter would be read out to the whole church, he's like, it's my authority is there, it's present. Um, and there's a few things that I want us to make sure that we're clear on here, and we don't um, we're not importing our kind of view into. So he says the, the word uh, separate him, why? For the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved. So when he talks about his flesh, he's not talking about his physical body. He's not saying separate him out so that he'll be killed. His flesh is his sinful nature, his desires, the carnal kind of flesh that we have, this stubborn, sinful orientation. His flesh is the settled, re- resolved opposition to correction and change. That's what needs to be destroyed. We should listen to correction from our brothers and sisters. More than listen, we should invite it. We should welcome that, right? That's why we break our church into smaller kind of groups um, with missional communities, people that you can be known, that can know you, that can see your life close up, core groups. And we ignore that to our own peril. This is meant, this separating him out is, is, is meant to wake him up from his spiritual kind of amnesia. What the church isn't just saying is, hey, what you're doing isn't a good idea. What you're doing, I don't think, is, is very smart or wise. What the church is saying when it separates him out is, listen, if this doesn't change, we fear for your soul. We fear that, you, that the spirit isn't actually present in you. There doesn't seem to be any kind of uh, conviction and change that's happening in our life. And so the goal isn't condemnation. The goal is restoration. It's to bring him back into the community. Um, Turn to Matthew chapter 18, because what we also need to see is what Paul is describing here is really the last step in a longer process. It's the last step in a a longer process. So we don't start with, hey, I see some sin in your life. You're out, (laughs) right? It's a longer process. Look at uh, uh, Matthew 18, verse 15. This is Jesus' instructions. He says, if your brother sins against you, that's brother, sister, sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay, so uh, someone sinned against you in the church or you notice sin in their life in that sense, you're to go to them one-on-one, right? The, the goal isn't to openly shame people. The goal is restoration, that we are all walking in repentance. And so we should also welcome this in, our, in, in each other's lives as well. Right? You should have people in your life um, that have permission, hey, if you see things in my life that you don't think are, are in line with the gospel, hey, I notice, man, you, you're really harsh with your wife. I notice you're really short-tempered with your kids. Is there something going on there? Is there you know, what, what's happening here? That We have this kind of corrective. We do that one-on-one. But he says, if he listens to you, then what? You've gained your brother. And this is exactly what Paul's trying to, they're trying to gain this, this brother back. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so it gets ratcheted up a little bit. Maybe bring a couple other people from your MC in, other people that would know this person, other people that, hey, listen, I was really serious. You didn't seem to take that serious. Like we're really concerned uh, uh, here of what's going on. We want to see you walk in the fullness um, that, uh, that Christ has to offer us. If he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Right? So he's no longer a brother. He's now to be treated like an outsider, like a Gentile or a tax collector. We'll come back to that here in a second. So we see this, what's described here in 1 Corinthians is the very last step or should be the last step. Why it isn't is because the church is failing to do their job. No one has confronted the man and they're arrogant and they're kind of boasting about it. So not only do they not uh, confront him, um, they've just openly and widely accepted as, it, as if it is normal, as if it's normal kind of Christian practice. Paul is emphatic that it is not. Um, a couple other things to notice. In verse 11, you notice that he says, don't even eat with them. This probably doesn't mean you're to never eat with this person ever again, right? You're to treat this person like a tax collector. What did Jesus do with tax collectors? He ate with them, right? Why? Do you remember the most famous encounter he probably has with the tax collector is Zacchaeus. He actually goes to his house and he eats with Zacchaeus. Now, the, the point there isn't to affirm Zacchaeus' sin, to, to let everybody know that Zach, my man Zac is legit, It's to actually call him to repentance and that's exactly what happens. So much so that Zacchaeus leaves his ways and then pays back all of the people that he's wronged. um, More than he actually took away. So this probably doesn't mean that, that you're never to eat with them again. Again, this was so that they are to know that they're not receiving a particular kind of meal because the context here that we see The meal that he's probably referring to, that he is referring to, is the Lord's Supper. Now, again, for them, as we'll see as we move further into the book of 1 Corinthians, it wasn't how we do the Lord's Supper here, right? These people were meeting in homes, smaller house churches. It was an actual meal. Um, So it would have been on a full-on meal that they would have have celebrated um, the Lord's death and resurrection. That's the meal that he's supposed to be excluded from. Why? Because that meal has significance in that. That's a meal that only they were to receive together. And it was a meal that signified them receiving kind of grace. And so they're to um, dis- disallow him to eat that meal particularly. Verse 11 also, he says don't, says, don't associate. Again, this probably doesn't mean that they are to cut off all ties one-on-one, Right? Oh, see that person in the street, cross the street, shun them in that kind of way. That, that, that can't be what he means. How, how did they treat tax collectors and Gentiles? They associated with them enough, right? But their lives weren't entangled. They weren't enmeshed um, together. Individually, with that person, sure. As a goal of restoration, absolutely. Fellowship and community together, that's what he was to be removed from. Why? So that he feels the weight, so that he feels the loss the weight of his sin, that he is woken up to the fact um, that the way he is living is antithetical to the character and nature of God. They are to feel and experience the holiness of God. right? God's spirit, as we even see in this letter, is present when his people gather together. He's to feel the loss of that. Another thing that we see here is important, The restoration isn't just for the individual. Particularly in this case, restoration was for the whole community. Look at verses 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a a little leaven, leavens, that's a tongue twister, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are in leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Yeast doesn't stay, if you've made bread, I enjoy making pizza dough, um, and you put yeast in there, and it doesn't just stay in one corner, right? You can't just have like half, half a loaf of, of bread rise and the other half be unleavened. That's not how yeast works. It kind of works its way into the whole thing. Um, and undealt with, sin permeates the whole. What one person does in the community impacts another one. That's why there's so many one another commands in the scripture, that are positive to us, right? This is how the yeast kind of works its way through. We're to confess sin to one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to love one another. We're to bear one another. We're to do all these one anotherings in that sense. Sin affects all of us. It has social effects. This wasn't just between the man and his stepmom. Other people were affected. The father, if he was still on the scene. The church, the family, the watching pagan community. Paul wanted the whole Restored, and the man needed to confess his sin. The church needed to confess their tolerance of sin. Do you remember when we looked at the uh, churches of Revelation, uh, particularly the the church in Thyatira? What was the one thing that Jesus had against them that they tolerated? <coughs> they tolerated a certain um, woman in their church that he refers to as Jezebel, and what was the main thing that she was teaching? Sexual immorality. And that's the one thing that Jesus has. He's like, you haven't dealt with her, and this is exactly what's happening here as well. So the goal isn't shame. it's not uh, They're not playing into the kind of shame-honor culture that's happening there. The goal is restoration. The goal is to see this person repent from their sin, turn from their sin. And then lastly, our third point, The grace of discipline. This is important. Middle of verse 7. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul here again, he's referencing this meal, the Lord's Supper, what we refer to as communion. And the Lord's Supper is basically discipline in miniature form, week after week. One of its functions is to provide kind of mini spurts of warning every time we take the bread and the wine, which we'll do today. Paul, as we'll see um, in chapter 11 of this very letter, he's going to talk about uh, this more. He says, um, let a person examine himself then. This is examining ourselves before we come to the meal. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is exactly what's happening He goes, You guys are just, you're not discerning what's going on in this meal. Um, Just open, unrepentant, sexual, immoral people are just partaking of this meal. And look at the consequences that he says in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. Again, why, why does the Lord discipline us? He disciplines us to bring us back into fellowship with him so that we don't, we're not condemned or we're not judged in the final judgment along with the world. We will all be disciplined by the Lord. It will either be corrective discipline as his children or it will be punitive discipline as those that are outside of the family of God. And so a healthy church is a self-correcting kind of ecosystem. Rather than exercising formal, corrective discipline, we willingly submit to one another and we receive informal, um, formative discipline. We should regularly be admonishing one another, confessing our weaknesses, our struggles, our sins with one another. And in doing so then, um, we receive as this kind of means of grace we receive the community. We can come to the table, not as perfect people, but we come to the, to the table as repenting people. Speaking truth and love to each other is admittedly uncomfortable, right? No one likes to have those conversations. Um, I, I've had to have some of those in my life. Um, Sue and I, um, just a few couple months ago, um, had to have one of those kind of conversations. And Sue's like, man, this is really hard, isn't it? And I said, well, it's not hard. It's just not, it's just not comfortable. It's not hard in the sense of like, I, I don't know what to say or I don't know what to do. It's not complicated. It's not hard in that sense, but man, it's uncomfortable. And it's not enjoyable. It's not something that we look forward to. But it is necessary. And it's necessary for a healthy church. We should hardly ever see this kind of formal, late-stage discipline if there's a self-correcting ecosystem of regular, gracious, invited, informal discipline um, happening uh, regularly. And that happens, like, not just with the church leaders. That should be happening in your core groups, in our MCs. That's why they're there. These are leading to lives of us walking in repentance. And this isn't um, any kind of, like, heavy shepherding, right, what did Jesus tell his disciples? Hey, you're not to like lord your authority over people. This isn't like witch hunt where we're like, okay, now who's who's sin? Who can I who can I have that conversation with? Right? If that's your attitude, you probably are the one that needs to have the have a, have, a, have a conversation with. Right? This isn't some kind of like heavy shepherding, um, you know, hyper purity movement where we're looking for every little flaw in each other's lives. And so he says, listen, you're not to eat with this person. You're not to eat that meal with this person. Why? Because only the body of Christ is supposed to receive the body of Christ. That's why we fence the table every week. That's why we say things like, hey, if you're a believer, you're walking um, with Jesus, you're welcome to the table. If you're not a Christian, we'd ask you not to partake of this meal. Why? For these reasons right here, it's meant to be a celebration, a declaration of what God has done through his death and resurrection for his people. And we receive that as this means of grace. Communion is, it's a means of grace in that it wakes us up from our sleepy indifference, or at least it's supposed to. But it also empowers us as growing Christians. In verse 8, he says that we're to receive this, we're we're to celebrate this um meal with sincerity and truth notice not perfection in truth or none of us would come to the table it's sincerity i'm sincerely trying to walk with jesus i'm sincerely wrestling with sin i'm not entreating that and so we don't take communion lightly But we take it as repentant sinners, needing grace once again. Um, If we are in Christ, we don't have to fear the ultimate judgment of God. God will discipline us, but he will not destroy us. Christ has absorbed the full and final judgment of God. We can embrace these kind of spurts of informal discipline because they are God's grace to us. They are preserving us from formal judgment knowing that we are secure in our union with Christ, and we partner together to live in deeper communion with him. And so the church can strive to create this kind of edifying um, ecosystem where mutual correction is offered. It's not easy, it's not comfortable, but it is truthful and it's loving. It's a place where God's people are welcomed by grace, where we are sustained by grace. And even in the extreme case of formal discipline, it is that grace that calls that sinner home. We all need the Passover lamb. We all need Jesus crucified for our sins. It was, his, it was the blood of the lamb that they would post on the doorpost. It wasn't because they were perfect. Why did the Passover um, angel, the angel of death, pass over them? Because there was the blood of the lamb covering their house. That's the same for us. We will... We will Escape final judgment. Not because we are perfect, not because we haven't sinned, but because of the blood of the Passover Lamb. And we pursue that with sincerity and truth. It's not about being better than somebody else. There's no levels in the household of God. It's been said that the household of God is a one-story house, right? So there's no penthouse where you know some people get to live up in this penthouse. There's just in and out. There's in the household of God, and there's outside the household of God. And it's only by grace that we are welcomed in. And if our relationship with the church isn't currently one where discipline can happen to us, um, so you're not a member of the church, then our relationship to the church is different than the ideal one laid out in Scripture. We should be a part of a church, like commit to one, going, you know what, I'm in. This is a place where, where I, I'll, I'll receive that kind of correction in my life. And it's a place that I'll offer that kind of correction um, to other people as well. So when a fellow believer lovingly confronts us that we see in Matthew 18, we should receive that for what it is, a means of grace. It's one of the values that we even have in our church, a culture of grace we want to extend grace beyond our own means our own our own our own measure and so we need to understand that we all have a vital role to play in this grace of discipline each member has committed to maintain and pursue the purity and peace of the church seeking opportunities to do this actively this is what's happening here paul warns them that This man certainly is in danger of being outside of the household of God. And them, by their failure to even acknowledge that, might put them in danger of being outside the household of God. That we are called to live a life of holiness and a life of ongoing repentance. And that's part of how Jesus sanctifies us. It's part of how he makes us more and more like him. And so we're going to do what, what they did then, um, now. We're going to come to the table to be reminded of the Passover lamb, the blood that was shed to cover our sin, um, that we live that life of repentance. Not a life of, of stubbornness, of, of openly rejecting that and still coming to the table. Paul says that you make a mockery of what God has done for us in Christ through his death and resurrection. And so we come, and we come with a, we come with a, a sense of uh, the weightiness of why um, Christ had to die for us, but we're able to receive that as a means of grace, and we leave the table, we should leave the table with, with that burden relieved and lifted because of what Jesus has done for us, because of the prayer of confession that we pray today, and to be Uh, absolved of our sin that God is slow to anger that there is no more condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus but one of the evidences that you are in Christ Jesus is the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin our desire for sin waning our desire to to love and to obey and to please Jesus growing um, and thus living a life of repentance let's do that together Father, we thank you for uh, your word this morning. Um, Not an easy word, but such a necessary word and such a word of love um, to us. Just as a a father, a good father, a good mother disciplines their child. um, Father, we understand that discipline, when done correctly, when done rightly, when not done out of anger, um, is actually a really, really good thing. It shapes us, it forms us into the people um, that you would have us to be. It keeps us um, from ruining our lives. It keeps us from heartache and from pain. It keeps us from hurting other people. Um, sin never stays within ourselves. It always ends up claiming other victims. And so, Father, I pray that um, you would help us to see the goodness in this this morning, uh, that you would help us to welcome this in our lives, um, that you would help us to... Um, Be active, that we wouldn't just be passive in the church, um, but that we would love each other uh, enough to to speak truth into our life. Father, that we would receive that as the means of grace that it is. Um, So, Father, I pray um, as we've prayed for unity in our church, and Father, I pray that it's not a shallow kind of unity. It's not a unity because we all kind of like the music here, we all kind of like certain things, but it's a, a deeper unity that goes. Um, into our desire to be like Jesus, to walk and practice the way of Jesus. And um, Father, that means that every single one of us, pastors, elders included here, is gonna need to have uh, corrective discipline in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would grant us um, just a spirit of of openness and welcome to that, um, that we wouldn't have a spirit of judgmentalism Um, Of of trying to find faults. Um, Father, we know that love covers a multitude of sins um, and yet um, we want to be obedient. We want to walk lives of holiness and repentance. And so by your spirit, would you help us do that even this morning? Um, And Father, I pray that as we come to the table now, as we receive um, bread and wine, your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, um, that we would feel that that weight of our sin lifted this morning. Um, and that that sense of lightness, that sense of, of walking in your grace um, would just stir our affections, our desires for more of that, more than the pleasure that we get from sin. And Father, I pray that we would just see the pleasure that we get from that is so temporary and so fleeting, um, whereas the pleasure that we have um, at your hand, as the psalmist said, is pleasure forevermore. It's one that will never fade. Um, Father, may we taste and see that goodness, even in the bread and wine this morning. I ask this in your name.